From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy the program, please rate the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you downloaded this. It really helps us grow. Thanks. On this episode, I'm speaking with my friend, Dr. David Francis, an assistant professor in the Division of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery here at the University of Wisconsin. Dave directs the Otolaryngology Outcomes Research Group and is a nationally recognized leader in health services research. As you'll hear, his research focuses on a patient-centered approach, in this case using a Facebook group, to improve the care of a group of patients suffering from a very rare and unpleasant disease, idiopathic subglottic stenosis, a condition where, for reasons we don't fully understand, your airway scars down, making it ever more difficult to breathe. I spoke with Dr. Francis after he gave a Grand Rounds talk called Studying the Needle in the Haystack, Social Media and Rare Diseases. We have a link to his talk on the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Dave Francis, welcome to the Surgery Set. Good to be here. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. We're friends and neighbors, but this is your first time appearing on the show. And you gave a great Grand Rounds about a really unusual disease that has sort of become your focus. Maybe just tell us a little bit about how it is that you, you found yourself studying something that happens to one in, is it 400,000 people? So this is a super rare disease, and so my career and my focus in medicine is uh, in a field called laryngology, which focuses on breathing, swallowing, and, and voice disorders. And one of these rare diseases that has become part of our kind of uh, standard practice is this airway stenosis, upper airway stenosis. And so this has kind of been part of my my being since I started, since residency and into fellowship and beyond. What is interesting is in my practice, it's not that rare because they end up finding me, the patients who have this. But if you go out into the community, if you go ask a general practitioner or even medical students or residents like about this, they kind of have a blank look on their face because they've never heard of it. And, and rightly so. It's it's very rare. and We don't even know what causes it. So that's kind of how things that's how I became familiar with it. But what really drove this was my fellow, who's now kind of a well-known person in this field, who came to me during fellowship and wanted to study this rare disease and had a real passion for it. And so that, to me, was kind of an amazing lesson in terms of the big picture about being an educator, being a teacher, helping people try to find their way in medicine, and particularly with research. I mean, these types of decisions can make or break you. If you choose the wrong thing to study or if it doesn't work out, you may not have another shot at it. So really that, to me, is kind of an exciting thing. And then his passion to push it forward and for us to figure out a a method to study this really put this on the map and actually has really helped a lot of people with this disease to become a better community, to work together towards cure, and I think, you know, is kind of a model approach to studying these super rare diseases. If you can get a community like that 
and someone who's passionate about it to study it and that communication and collaboration between centers, you really have a special ability to study it. In fact, one of our motivations was uh, pediatric oncology. We always talk about uh, Wilms tumor mm. kind of when I was teaching, when, I, we were, when we were kind of talking about this and during his fellowship, because uh, Wilms tumor used to kill people. Uh, a lot of people and, until recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at kind of that, that group that formed, that kind of collaboration, and just studying the things that were currently being done no, no change. There's no like new intervention, but optimizing what you have can change the outcome for kids or adults with these super rare diseases. And so that was one of the models we often talked about when we were kind of thinking about how would you develop this? Because we don't have that. We don't have that, that kind of network set up because our field's so small, kind of like pediatric surgery. It's like a pretty small group of people we don't have oncologists or other people who are necessarily super interested in this in this disease, so that really is kind of a, our, one of our models. Yeah, so I mean, and, and it did re- it resonated with me because I think in pediatric surgery we do have that problem, right? Like there, we have a, we treat a lot of things that are very rare. We see them a lot because they sort of funnel into our centers, but then you know different centers do it differently, and you actually don't have good ways of comparing like what one center is doing, what another is doing. Here we're part of something called the Midwestern Pediatric Surgical Consortium, which is 11 centers that are sort of agreed to like test how you know things work between ourselves, and that's kind of what what you did. But I thought what was really awesome about the, your initial recruitment was finding these patients is hard. Some of them, you know, they find their way to different centers. They find their way to you. They find their way to the other sort of specialists. But they also have made a community of their own, and you were able to tap into that, like, on Facebook. Yeah, that was the game changer for us. And so one of our co- co-eyes on the PCORI grant was Catherine Anderson, who ran, who runs uh, this Facebook support community. So she's a physician. No, she is a patient. Wow. And a very passionate patient who cares a lot and, you know, wanted to learn more about her disease. So she set this up. And so it has become really successful, and it continues to grow. But that really was kind of an amazing opportunity to tap into a huge number of patients who are geographically dispersed across the world without having to go to them or to recruit the center, get IRB, everything else, because we could do it kind of electronically because we're collecting their data, we're getting their permission to get their information and, and checking it. But that is a unique approach to studying these rare diseases is going to the patient and having the patient who is obviously the most invested person in their disease to help with research. And engaging them is something that we don't do enough of. And I think that patients desperately, especially with these rare diseases, desperately want answers and are willing to do whatever they can to help themselves and future patients who may develop it. Yeah, because, I mean, the traditional model, right, is you have a question about a disease. You want to study it in a multicenter. So you go to the doctors at those centers. You get institutional approval at all of those centers. And then you sort of, even without the patients knowing, right, like get permission to sort of look through their records retrospectively. You anonymize those records. You compile them all and sort of talk about statistically is one group different from another. But, like, oftentimes the patients aren't even involved in that. And you went from the really the, not to say the bottom, but from the, the patients up to the doctors, right? You identified the actual patients and then got their records through the patient. It seems like 
such an, on the one hand, like novel, on the other hand, like such a commonsensical way to approach the problem is engage the patients who have the problem and go from there. Right. So, so I, I agree with you kind of saying the bottom isn't a good thing, but what we, what, how we thought about it was flipping the pyramid. So exactly. normally, That's right. normally we talk about like the centers of excellence, you kind of, the, the shining beacon on the hill kind of is in charge of deciding like which person goes into which trial. But in this situation, we wanted to we also know that physicians are notoriously bad at recruitment. And if you look at NIH, like the recruitment's terrible. So we wanted to flip it and so say, okay, the patients want this and they're willing to do just about anything. So if we can get them to be involved and then also engage the surgeons who are doing it, it creates this, this real nice nexus of information that we can access and learn from. And it also brings, which is the other fascinating thing about this is, a few weeks ago at our national meeting, we had we gave a talk, Alex and I, to both patients and physicians in the same room. Oh, wow. And so it really brings that community together so that they hear the patient's perspective, not just the doctor's perspective, because we are terrible at understanding how patients actually live with diseases, because all we know is that 10 minutes we spend with them and 20 minutes we spend with them in clinic or if we have a chronic disease, you may see them, you know, more frequently. But we just don't know their lives, and so being with them, hearing them, hearing their perspectives, and and including them in research is, re- I think, really is the future for a lot of the stuff that that we do. And I think you know we've often said, well, well, it's patients like we, meaning like medicine as a whole, have said, well, you know, patients can't understand the subtleties of these different things. But I mean, you did a survey of your patients and got a ninety percent response rate, and like. Yeah these patients know more about like what's going on in their lives than obviously we ever could. Right. Right. So, I mean, this is, so, so that's a tribute to Catherine because she's really interested and engaged with the research um, is that we can ask questions to them about how they interact with the Facebook group. Was it useful? Have they ever had this or that or look at exposures or whatever to get some kind of seed information about the disease process, what they're living with, their experience, all these things. And it really is an amazing resource um, that needs to be cultivated because that can be abused too. But but if you use it correctly and you you engage the patients appropriately, you really can do some special things. And it's an ongoing process. And one of the things that I think is so exciting about this is that it creates a community that is interested in research and it's not just like a one-off thing. I mean, they're they're engaged. Yeah, they want more information. They all know each other. They know the doctors. They know everything that we do about what we found. And so they're pushing us as much as we're pushing them. And I think that's really interesting. The early results of your research, basically, you looked at the three treatments that exist for idiopathic subglottic stenosis, mm-hmm. right? And then you you found that there are significant differences between those three treatments, but there's you also did a lot of statistical analysis that would suggest that some of those differences are not clinically significant, but also that you know that some of those patient groups are not are, are actually different, despite the fact that this is a disease that occurs to kind of yeah. a very demographically similar group. Where are you headed with this? So, so we divided into three primary treatments, but to be clear, there are folks out there who are trying different things, like injections of steroids, and so, or doing these uh, skin grafts, or they're doing rib grafts, or whatever. There's tons of different procedures. These are the three main procedures that we kind of looked at. And so when someone looks at our data and doesn't have context, they may say, oh, if I have this disease, I need to have my whole subglottis removed and have a big surgery because it works better than these other two things. Mm-hmm. 
But I think it's really important to couch that in that that surgery is complex. It has a lot of upfront cost, risk, and it's not something that, like, if you don't do it frequently, you should just start doing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, is, is it as good as we showed? It's hard to know. And I think we need to always have a grain of salt with that information that that really is a separate thing. But what's most interesting to me is, this, is the two endoscopic approaches we talked about because those are, in the patient's experience, should be no different except that one group has to take a bunch of medicines. Mm-hmm. So, it's a, so the patient comes into the operating room. It's a black box to them. Right. They're having something done down there. Either they're getting a balloon dilation or they're getting tissue lasered away. Yeah. And then they and leave and they can breathe. Yeah. And then one group takes a bunch of medicine afterwards. The other group takes maybe none or maybe this physician decides to dabble in some medicine or whatever. And that to me is really where some of the immediate kind of gains could be made is if we can understand is it the surgery differences that made the difference there, or is it has it have something to do with kind of modulating the disease with medication afterwards? Mm-hmm. That's really where the next clinical trial piece is. And with that being said, I mean, if we find that there's that everyone should be on inhaled steroids, and that's we just open them up and then they put on, on inhaled steroids this much per day, and they never have a recurrence. That's a home run. But the other thing to keep in mind is that like a lot of things we do in surgery and a lot of things we do in research in surgery is, is basically putting ourselves out of business to a degree. Right. Like, can we find out, oh, this is caused by X and I give them this pill or this treatment and then they don't ever need surgery again. We are going to look back in probably 10, 20, 30 years and say, we were barbarians. We should never have done that. Right. But we didn't know any better. It's like bloodletting or some other crazy yeah, like stuff. I always say, if, if, if we do our jobs right, our grandkids will think that we were barbarians. Right. Right? Right. Because we will have advanced the field past our own right. profession. Right? right. And that, to me, is for, for people who are listening, medical students, you know, anyone training or doing research – in surgery, particularly, that's that should always be our focus: is to do less and get more. So that really is kind of why the basic science work that's going, the genetics that is going on, and the engagement of patients in those aspects is so critical. Because, you know, we come at it from two different angles. I come at it, and you come at it to a degree when we're doing research, looking at the now. Yeah. And we often say, well, if we do genetic research or molecular stuff that may not help anyone for years. And so I don't know if I have attention span for that, but someone does. <laughs> right. And that's the nice thing is that you have to come at it from both angles, do the best we can for people now, recognizing that some smart person is going to figure out why we don't need to do what we do anymore. Right. But we can't wait for that either. We can't say, oh, yeah, let's let the genetics pan out and we'll just keep doing the same thing. The patients who have it now one answers. And right. so, so this is kind of this weird tension between the outcomes, basic science, translational, multi-institutional studies, is that weird interaction. We right now are content experts, right, in how to manage this disease or any you know, mm-hmm. disease with the tools that we have right now. Like you as an otolaryngologist, you've got balloons, you've got a laser, you've got a scalpel, you can right. manipulate the trachea, right? But like ultimately this will ideally be managed with a medication, right? Right. And so you've done with this disease what has frequently 
been done with the common diseases and extremely infrequently been done with right. these diseases that are super rare, which is you've sort of got the ball rolling now on a multimodality approach, right? I mean, it's not just that you're doing looking at what happens to people on a Facebook group, right? right? I mean, there are people looking at fibroblasts. There are people looking at genetics. There are people looking at environmental triggers. I mean, there's now the sort of full court approach yeah. that started with asking questions of people on a Facebook group. Right. right. I mean, it, it's, it, it's an amazing thing. The other thing that is, has come out of this that's fascinating to me is even just the approach itself is something that could be used going forward. Like, should we be studying diseases this way? I mean, just there's even people studying the social aspects of like, how do you access patients in a meaningful way in rare diseases? So, so I think that that kind of is our model is to try to set it up so that the ball, like you said, is rolling. And that, that really is our goal in the long term is to get that whole kind of full court press, multi-pronged approach to go forward. Right. For you to study the, I don't know how many patients you see with this, but 10, yeah. 20, right, is, not is, is not meaningful. Right. But an, a cohort of 4,000 patients is actually a lot of patients for any study of any disease, right. Right? right? It just happens that for you, that's like you've managed to enroll 95% of the people with right. it, whereas like that's 1% of the people with appendicitis, it's still like a good number. Right, and then no matter what, right. And then that, I think that's really, that's really interesting. And getting back to your point about methodologic content expertise, I think that's something that surgeons and physicians have a terrible time with because we all liken ourselves to be excellent at everything and right. we're researchers and so forth. But asking for help is not something we're very good at. Looking at what people are doing in other fields that are maybe more advanced or trying to find analogies or find out, you know, maybe the Wagoners group knows something we don't and maybe we should look at what they're doing and figure out similarities. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And so I always recommend not just presenting at your own type of societies and l reading broad literature on topics and trying to be more well-read than just living in your box. Because if you live in your box, it's hard to learn a lot because it's an echo chamber. Right. You yeah. kind of hear from the same people. You know what they're going to say. But if you start to read or look outside, you sometimes learn something really novel. And then someone in your field says, oh, that's so new. But it's not new. It's just borrowed. <laughs> right. And so I, yeah. I always laugh about that. It's like, oh, that's such a cool new idea. It's totally everything we do. There's very rarely is something brand new, like a concept or a thing is not brand new. We borrow things from different fields and then we repackage it and then people give us credit. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of other people. And so even when we're talking about like evidence-based medicine, like we always poo-poo like, you know, case series or case, you know, right. or a, case a study, study that was done in like. It, it's not valid because it was done in 1995, right? right? Like, right. come on. And the other thing about that is, like, yeah. you know, nothing, nothing starts with a randomized trial. Right. So someone has to have an idea and be like, well, I saw this. That's so interesting. And they publish it. And so the whole uh, evidence-based pyramid that we work off of is kind of a fallacy because no one can be like, that's, that's not good enough. That's how everything starts with an idea. Someone notices an, uh, an association, and then it becomes this, this. And so as we're walking through this, you know, I don't ever poo-poo those trial of 10 people that they did at X university because that was a stepping stone towards these big trials that hopefully will cure the disease. And so someone recognized an association, and that same thing goes for any field you talk about. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because, um, you know, when we're doing 
you know, when we're talking at M&M or we're talking about anything, we're like, oh, there's no randomized trial, so we don't really know what's going on. Well, that, that's because it, it's still in its infancy. Someone needs to push it forward. Right. Someone has to find that, that signal in, in what is admittedly like a lot of noise, right? But you find that, those signals and you pull them forward. Right. I had a mentor who used to say when I would find some paper from an outside discipline or, or find evidence that someone had asked this question, you know, years and years and years ago, but now we had new tools to ask yeah. it better, right? He'd say, this is why it's called research, right? right? Exactly. That's yeah. A great, that's a great way to look at it. Because I do think that's, that, that that is something. So we'll look back and be like, this, this person had a great idea in 1965 that just didn't seem plausible, but now it totally seems plausible. And maybe the answer, but it's buried. And so bringing that back to the fore, and they're like, oh my gosh, you're a genius. It's just like, what a great new idea. And you're like, you know, it's not really my idea. Uh, so <laughs> the, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past, right? Yeah. It's a living organism, yeah. the whole research concept. So, so I, I agree with you. But those are some of the things that I think when we're teaching people about research or we're doing research, it's always important to, to keep in the back of our mind and keep ourselves humble about things because we all we we all think we know everything. We're like I'm bored of appendectomies, or I'm bored of uh, inguinal hernias, or I'm bored of idiopathic sublesnos that I treated a million times. But sometimes it's important to think: What do I actually know about this? What right. do we actually know? And is there a better way to do things? And I think a lot of times we get complacent in medicine about things because we've been doing it the same way and it works every time, which also makes it harder for us to share our experience because. Why would we want to share our experience when we're already doing a great job? Yeah, I mean, my lab is sort of on the opposite end of what you do, right? So, like, our primary focus right now is on umbilical hernias, mm -hmm. which are present in, like, 20% right. of right. babies, right? It's literal navel-gazing. Like, we right. think about the belly button, and, like, this problem that nobody writes about because it's so common. Right. And then we discover that there's huge variations in therapy. There's, like, crazy stuff going on. But, like, no one's bothered to look because it's kind of, you know, it's a minor surgery, like, whatever. It's, like, belly buttons. Who cares? But, but it turns out, actually, there's a ton of subtlety there right. that, like, nobody's bothered to look into because they've been too focused on the Wilms tumors, right? right. Like, you can go both directions. You can focus in on the narrow, like, rare right. stuff, or you can, like, and neglect the common or vice versa. Like, we have to keep a broad mind about, like, well, what are we doing? And I'm a little ADD about this, too, because I think that there – I totally agree with you, and I think that – uh, one of the things that with variation research is that people look at variation and they're like, oh, this is, a gar this is garbage. But you can learn a lot from watching how people do things differently. Yeah. And I think that even with something that simple, showing that you don't have to operate on everyone to someone who does operate on everyone can, can impact a lot of people. And, and educating them about it and showing them there's data to support this. Or, right. Or, I mean, people think like, oh, I do it this way. Everyone must do it this way because it's so simple. I was taught this way in residency. Right. I've been doing it for years. Like, right. well, of course this is the only way. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, that's almost undefensible at this point to say, like, that's just the way I've always done it, yeah. in my opinion. I think right. that's something that the younger generations are becoming more and more willing to ask, like, why do we do it this way? Um, but I do agree. I think that if you have something with a lot of variation, it means we don't know the answer yet. Mm -hmm. Or the answer is out there kind of situation. Like X, you know, what is that? X files, the answer is out there. <laughs> right. But the like, truth is out the there. The truth yeah. is out there. Yeah. Right. But the truth is out there. It's probably there. And we just need to be, learn how to access it. And so when you're doing variation research, whether it's in something as rare as this or it's tonsils or it's, you know, whatever, I mean, that's really important research because we need to understand why people are behaving the way they do 
we also need to understand, like, can we find the, the best way to do it and approach this problem with the least amount of risk? Yeah. So I am, uh, you know, my background at Dartmouth was on, was like the Dartmouth Atlas. It was like variations in care. Yeah. Which I still to this day is kind of a, a kind of a, a foundational um, post for me when I'm doing research is because, you know, studying rare disease is fun, but, you know, from a policy standpoint, like if you look at how things, common things are done, there's big implications for that. So, um, you know, helping small groups of patients, helping big groups of patients have a lot of similarities in terms of the approach. It's just, it's just different obstacles that kind of you run into. This is totally fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for for taking the time on the podcast and for your great talk, which will be available online for people to watch the whole thing. I think it's, you know, incredibly valuable resource not just for students and residents, but also for, you know, for patients out there who are, are now, you know, thinking about how to manage their own idiopathic cephalotic stenosis or who have their own rare disease that, that hasn't yet been able to take this approach. Like, this is, this is something that could be widely applied to a whole range of things out there that are rare, right? I mean, like, individual diseases are rare, but rare diseases are common, right? Right, yeah. exactly. I think that's very well said. That's our hope, and, you know, this is definitely not... Um, not all me. I mean, my the team that worked on this was tremendous, and Alex Gelbard needs the the vast majority of the accolades for for his passion in getting this together. So it's, it's research is a team sport. That's something else that we've kind of learned along. We we all know, um, but you really, when you live it, it's amazing to see what a team can do versus an individual. And so more kind of discussion of content and method experts kind of getting together and to make a difference. Yeah. I mean, what an awesome roadmap you have made. So congratulations and thanks again. Of course. Join us next time for a very special episode of The Surgery Set when I speak with my mentor and former boss, pediatric surgeon, Dr. Jessica Kendell of the University of Chicago. Dr. Kendell came to us as a visiting professor, and we had a great time talking about the role of serendipity in medical research. Chance truly does favor the prepared mind. Look for that in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at WiscSurgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.